You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hi, everybody. Quick housekeeping note here. You'll hear today's audio jump from time to time throughout today's episode. We had to do a few re-recordings, and due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to do it remotely versus together, like we originally recorded this episode. So we apologize about that, and our hearts and positive thoughts goes out to the whole world currently dealing with this. Okay, now back to the show. Hey, Chad. Yeah. Did you know that the Federal Reserve is missing two-thirds of all the $100 bills that they printed? What? Yeah, they actually counted all the $100 bills in all the banks, all the cash registers, and found that two-thirds of all the bills are unaccounted for. So in other words, they're most likely overseas. Mm. But conspiracy theorists are on the case, and they're blaming the Illuminati. Of course. Yep. But that's not really why we're here today, is it? Uh, I should hope not. (laughs) No, 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 no. But did you know that Bloomberg LP is the largest stock research platform in the world? I knew it was big, but I didn't realize it was the largest. Yeah, it's really big. The founder, Mike Bloomberg, also holds another record, one for the largest test and learn advertising campaign in history that he ran for his presidential campaign. And he spent roughly $676 million in his very, very short media campaign. That is insane. And just to put that into perspective, so Procter & Gamble, as most people know, has one of the largest ad budgets in the world. They actually spent a total of $6.7 billion, which sounds really high, you know, right. compared to the $676 million of over Bloomberg. How, over how many brands, though? 44 brands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they averaged somewhere around like $152 million per brand for like their total annual advertising budget. So Bloomberg outspent the annual ad budget of like many of these brands, which are, by the way, like some of the biggest brands right. in the entire world by three to four times. But he didn't do that within a 12-month period like they did. He did it within about a three-and-a-half-month period. It's absolutely craziness. Yeah, so today's episode, we're going to be unpacking whether a brand can buy his way to the top. Doing this research for this episode, we actually approached it as a massive marketing fail. But I wouldn't be surprised if we do another follow-up episode in November, which might actually be the rescue. Yeah, and it's super interesting to me that you're calling you know, this whole thing that he did a test and learn because that's an insane amount of money just to test the waters and see what happens, right? To put it in perspective for our listeners, $676 million, you can buy 103 million Chipotle burritos, or you can pay off the student debt for 150,000 people. You can purchase condos for 2,200 people, or you can buy 335 McDonald franchises. <laughs> Jeez. So according to Axis, that's nine times as much money as the, the entire DNC raised in all of 2019. That's incredible. So let's actually get into why he decided to do this in the first place and what the result was. But before we do, I think it's important to note that this episode is not taking a political position. Something unprecedented happened, right? And it's really instructive and I think super fascinating for the marketing world. So we're approaching this episode from a neutral political perspective. Yep. And this is like super complex subject matter because of the fact that it's a political 
campaign. So we're not going to cover every angle, but there are some clear learnings that I think we'll dive into as we go through the episode. Cool. So now that the disclaimer is out of the way, let's get started. So Michael Bloomberg was born in 1942 in Boston, and his parents were actually pretty average Americans, and his father was a bookkeeper for a dairy farmer. And in 1973, Bloomberg became a partner at Solomon Brothers, a large Wall Street investment bank, where he led the equity training and system development for them. In 1981, Solomon Brothers was purchased by Fibro Corporation and Bloomberg was laid off or pushed out, depending on who you believe or what you want to read. And they gave him a $10 million cash buyout of his equity within the firm. That would be a nice parachute. Yeah, especially in 1981. (laughs) (laughs) So it just shows you how valuable he was during this time, right? He then started his own company in 1986 and named it after himself. And today it's the most used stock research platform that every single investment banker and most traders use. He's got about 375,000 subscribers and about $10 billion annual revenue. Not not chump change. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's got plenty to work with. And his political career really takes off when he's elected mayor of New York in 2001, and then again in 2005 and 2009. So on March 5th, 2019, there's all these rumors swirling about a potential presidential run from Bloomberg, and he decides to cut off the rumors by announcing that he would actually not run for president in 2020. Instead, he encouraged the Democratic Party to nominate a Democrat who will be in the strongest position to defeat Donald Trump and pledged to support that effort. But he became dissatisfied with the Democratic field and this decision that he had made didn't last. So he saw Joe Biden seemingly kind of stumbling to Bernie Sanders and also even losing significant portions of his core voting bloc to Pete Buttigieg. And so Bloomberg kind of got worried that the field wasn't really good enough. So then on November 24th, 2019, he officially launched his campaign for the 2020 Democratic nomination. At this point, it was really late in the game, right? So he was able to build a really massive campaign organization in a matter of weeks. But he did this in a very different way than what you'd think of a standard political grassroots perspective. Right. Yeah, so he basically had to build a centralized media-based campaign, which is a very, very different approach than any of his other rivals. Yeah. Really interesting quote from a sociological professor from the Indiana University, and his name's Fabio Rojas, and he said... When you run to be a senator or a president or a governor, you really have to rely on a pretty big network of people. You need a local activist to get your name out, and you need a network of donors, people who would vouch for you. And Bloomberg completely bypassed that. So he's really off to a really nice start. He's not even on the ballot for the first four states. And at this point, he's driving his entire campaign with his sheer wealth. Yeah, so he's at a disadvantage right from the beginning, just from that. And he has a ton of wealth to try to tackle this with. He's actually the richest presidential candidate in American history. I mean, at the time, his net worth is estimated by Forbes at around 62 billion. So yeah, he spends 676 million, but that's only 1% of his war chest. To him, I mean, that's like just walking around pocket money. So he ran the most expensive self-funded campaign in American history, all driving toward making a huge splash on Super Tuesday. Yeah, he's really rich, but he's got to have some motivation to be able to spend all that money though, right? Yeah, and it seems that the motivation is really that he just doesn't like Trump, either just a personality clash or policy positions and how he handles the presidency or both, but he's not a fan. Yep. (laughs) So they actually have a lot in common in that they're both New York City billionaires, 
But Bloomberg thinks of himself more as this average guy that worked really hard and made it big. And he just feels like he doesn't have anything to prove. But Donald Trump, as we all know, is very careful about crafting his image and coming off a, a particular way. Bloomberg is self-made, right? And Trump inherited a lot of money from his dad. That's correct. Yeah. So Rebecca Katz, a New York-based Democratic strategist, said, I'm sure Bloomberg has no gold toilets at his house. It's a different kind of money with less to prove. And according to Daniel Strauss, senior political reporter for The Guardian, Congressman Peter King, a New York Republican, said to him that Bloomberg had told him that the only time he really interacted with Trump was essentially at a couple of golf charity events. They were in many ways from different worlds, King said. He also said that before Trump ascended to national office, Bloomberg had described it as only meeting him a few times while Trump said he knew Bloomberg very well. Bloomberg and people in his orbit rarely mentioned Trump's name, King said. So yeah, so up until this point, at least in the press, they've been pretty polite to one another and they've rubbed shoulders a few different times. Yep. In 2004, Bloomberg appeared on an episode of The Apprentice and Trump invited him and he said he had great respect for him. At a charity golf event, Trump was quoted, my really terrific privilege to introduce a man that I think is one of the greatest mayors and will go down on one of the greatest mayors, if not the greatest, of the city of New York. In 2013, Bloomberg said, if there is anybody who has changed the city, it's Donald Trump. They were actually getting along really well at this point, but we all know they can only be one big billionaire in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> only one can be the true king of New York. <laughs> right? Yeah, so something big changes in 2016, though. Of course, Bloomberg, who was actually still an independent at the time, delivers a speech at the Democratic National Convention that summer saying he wasn't there as a member of any party, but to urge voters to help elect Hillary Clinton and defeat, quote, a dangerous demagogue. Trump tweeted around that time, quote, little Michael Bloomberg, who never had the guts to run for president, knows nothing about me, end quote. A journalist for the Washington Post, Michael Cranish, wrote a story about just this, and he quoted Trump for saying, things went strangely haywire once I ran for office, and Bloomberg was quoted in the same article, objection to Trump in the way he's filling the current role in terms of representing the country, in terms of representing the public. There's an attitude and a style and a lack of civility that I think is bad for the country, and I find it extremely offensive. So on March 1st, 2020, a 60-minutes correspondent remarks to Bloomberg that he had spent twice what President Trump had even raised and asked how much Bloomberg would be willing to spend. Bloomberg then replies, I'm making an investment in this country. My investment is I'm going to remove President Trump from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, or at least I will try as hard as I can. Yeah, so now it's November 24th, 2019, and this is where things started to get really interesting from an advertising perspective. So... The backstory bleeds into what happens next, both from a personal and also from a policy standpoint. Bloomberg takes a very unusual media domination path from with his wealth that he has. So like we said before, at this point, all he's got is his wealth. He doesn't have time. So he puts together this unusual media dominated path, basically, just to blast his message out. And with this chaotic media approach comes pros and cons. From a pro standpoint, he basically gets this massive amount of uncontested communication in front of the American electorate, which basically gives him the ability to test and learn things and see where he gets traction. And from a con standpoint, it's just absolute chaos. 
So we've seen so many deleted tweets and a lack of meaningful content and untargeted messaging throughout this entire thing. Yeah, you're totally right. So let's kind of break it down. So we know he spent a literal fortune and here's how he actually spent it. So he spent at least 275 million or about 40% of his budget directly against Trump. Instead of trying to convince Democratic voters he would be the best nominee, which is kind of interesting when, you know, you're already behind and trying to win the nomination, you'd think you'd put most of your efforts into that. But I think he was just trying to position, you know, both with independence as well as, you know, kind of the core Democratic base. So because of that, he ended up spending about 64% of his budget in battleground states versus delegate-rich blue states. So final detailed spending breakdowns by channel don't seem to be available, at least at the time we're recording this episode. But here are some things that we do know. He spent the most on TV with at least $225 million poured into TV commercials, including a cool $11 million on one Super Bowl ad. And his TV ads were so pervasive that a Yahoo YouGov poll from February 12th through the 13th showed that about two-thirds of registered voters had seen a Bloomberg ad on TV. He also invested really heavily in just a wide variety of social media platforms, with the most being spent on, of course, Facebook, with at least $63 million spent on Facebook ads at a pace in 2020 of over a million dollars a day. That is crazy. So this is another stat that puts it into even more perspective. He bought display ads at a pace of 30,000 ads per second. Holy moly. And he did something totally previously unthought of in presidential politics, which is pouring a significant number of resources into influencer marketing. He got really maximum bang for his buck because he's using his own money versus going through a super PAC. The laws of advertising applies very differently to him. Here is a quote from the Columbia Journalism Review that says, he spent his own money and by law, candidates are entitled to the lowest possible rates in every ad. Dark money organizations, by contrast, would pay whatever the market would bear. By reviewing 2,500 PDFs as insertion orders, he found that a massive bulk of them, of these insertion orders, had an average cost of 8 to $9. And for the media panelists listening, how often, when last, did you write an insertion order for 9 bucks? Yeah, probably never. Yeah, this is really interesting to think of political candidates as it relates to television, but where it really gets different is what he did in social media. Yeah, it just completely breaks all convention and possibly actually broke the law. Ellen Weintraub, who is an FEC commissioner, said, quote, when a campaign pays a social media influencer to create or post content, as Bloomberg's has done, it's a bit of a gray area, Weintraub said. Honestly, it's legally unclear. The FEC has not opined on this scenario. I think the best practice would be to view it as a political ad. But the FTC has, however, issued guidance on influencer marketing that requires influencers to clearly disclose in their content whether or not they're being paid for their opinion or have any other type of relationship with the product, brand, or service that they're promoting. And this wasn't always happening at first in Bloomberg's campaign. He was actually caught paying $2,500 per month to social media influencers. And Facebook, when they found out, actually allowed it to continue saying that as long as the posts were labeled as ads by the influencers and that that change was made, that they could remain up. He had a very, very different approach. As millions of people were watching the Democratic debate, presidential debate on stage at Des Moines, the last debate before the Iowa caucuses, Bloomberg were cranking out memes with influencers. 
Like here's a very unconventional approach tweet that he had. And the tweet read, test your political knowledge, spot the meatball that looks like Mike. It was an image of a bowl of meatballs, and one of the me- one of the meatballs had <laughs> Bluebrook's face on it. Very highly relevant to, to politics, right? Yes. So this tweet got 5.7 thousand likes, 2.6 thousand comments, and 1.3 thousand shares. And you can imagine that people were just ripping this to, to pieces, right? I mean, this is very unconventional. It's not what people are used to, and it's not very, very political. Yeah. So here's a quote from Wired, Kate Nebs. And she said, Mike Bloomberg's presidential campaign, hashtag spawn, might be cringeworthy, but it's also only the beginning. And there was a strategy behind it. So Really? <laughs> there actually was, yes. <laughs> it is very interesting. So every political campaign and, I mean, really any advertiser knows that there's, there's always going to be haters, right? We're probably going to have haters on this podcast. But you really have to just kind of have thick skin in order to be successful in politics or advertising in general. And so according to Carolyn Freeman, who is a digital advertising manager for Senator Cory Booker's 2020 presidential campaign, a self-deprecating strategy could actually help Bloomberg as the campaign attempts to win voters. They had actually kind of tried to establish a persona they called Weird Mike, to make him seem less stiff and unapproachable, especially with younger voters. So the meatball tweet shows a 78-year-old billionaire is, quote, really relatable, friendly guy, like your dad or like an older friend, she said, rather than like this billionaire who sort of just plummeted into the race. But it's really interesting to me that his kind of shameless use of influencer marketing really allowed him to get around transparency and fact-checking requirements. In fact, Twitter had actually suspended 70 troll accounts that posted content in support of his campaign. And even if he had been doing everything in a completely ethical manner, it just wasn't really targeted very well. So there was not enough time to really plan it out, of course. And so things just became this like blanket of advertising. We're picking up influencers in all 11 of the battleground states we're working in this year, NextGen National Press Secretary Heather Grevin says. We're approaching people saying, hey, you have the most famous dog in Madison, Wisconsin. Are you willing to talk about the upcoming voter registration deadline? So to speed the progress along for Bloomberg, he hired an agency called Tribe. And this is just crazy to me. There was a fixed fee of $150 per influencer, and the criteria were that they needed between a thousand and a hundred thousand followers. Mm. Basically, the brief to them was to their audience: tell us why Mike Bloomberg is the electable candidate who can raise above the fray, work across the aisle, so all Americans feel heard and respected. And here's a quote from uh, the CEO Anthony Srivikis. I'm sure I'm butchering that. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> We've got a network of people who want to create content for brands, and in this case, the brand is Mark. Bloomberg. I equate it to a creative agency or freelance producing content on behalf of an ad campaign. Yeah, and that's really what's going on here. A political campaign is no different than a product, right? Or or company branding. So there's a ton of parallels here. The politician is essentially like the brand. Their record and policies are the product. The political party is the brand category or maybe the brand vision and values. So you have to have this authentic brand that people can identify with, you know, a product that they want and also have a brand mission and values that people actually want to get behind. 
So we're both marketers and we know in order to connect to your audience, you need to create very relevant content on the right medium. You need to put it in front of them at the right time, right? Yep. yep. But this very diverse campaign that he had here was kind of interesting because it was so geared towards the influencers, anybody between 100 and 1,000 or 10,000 followers, that it actually didn't solve the problem, that there was a problem with the actual product they were promoting. Yep, so Justin Peters from Slate, who I think somewhat masochistically, and I don't know if that's the right word or not, but watched uh, 185 Bloomberg ads in an attempt to document Bloomberg's campaign strategy. Wow. Yeah, he, he summed it up pretty well. He says, no ad buy is too big or too small for Bloomberg. He is as comfortable spending $10 million on a minute-long Super Bowl ad as he is paying low-level social media influencers $150 a pop to mention him on the internet. The ads produced by Bloomberg's shop range from standard hope-and-change numbers to thirsty, weird, would-be viral videos, from wonky policy breakdowns to attack-style efforts to expose President Donald Trump's many shortcomings. He's hired meme guys to get the meme vote. He's endorsed pizza and ice cream to get the junk food vote. <laughs> He's secured the endorsements of Sam Waterston to get the law and order vote. He's wished Americans happy holidays in order to get the non-sectarian caroler vote. Bloomberg has released so many ads that it is virtually impossible to keep track of them all. Here's what I learned, though. For one thing, that watching nearly 200 campaign ads in a short period is sort of like being brainwashed, which I suppose is the goal of all advertising. Did he vote for him then? Well, he goes on in the quote to say, at this point, I wouldn't say I'm aboard the Bloomberg train, but I think I would feel a little less uncomfortable with buying a ticket. Oh, that's a great quote. <laughs> yep. And then uh, he continues, many of the ads are very good. Many more of them are not. But the quality of any individual ad, though, is ultimately less important than the breadth of the entire corpus. So what Bloomberg is doing is he's really kind of tapping into a similar strategy as Donald Trump, this sort of almost like brainwashing through just sheer volume and repetitiveness. Elizabeth Spear, which is a Democratic strategist, sums it up like this, mediocre messaging at massive scale. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Here are a few examples of large-scale, untargeted Instagram accounts memes that he actually used. For instance, at Kale Salads, at Tank Sinatra, at Grape Juice Boys, at White People Humor, or at F*** Jerry. And all of those have followers ranging from about 3 million or 2 million all the way up to about 15 million. Not to mention that all these influencers also have a really big Facebook following, yeah. right? This is Instagram. Here's an example of one of the memes that he did with at Kale Salas. It's a DM between Michael Bloomberg with Kale Salas. It says, hello, Mr. Salas, can you please post the meme to make me seem cool for the up and coming presidential primary? And then as part of this, there's like a little image that he, that he also sent with. And it said, Michael Bloomberg is like a Kale Salas, tough and tasteless, but ultimately good for you. <laughs> and then Kale Salas replied, I don't know, IDK, I don't know, it's not that funny. And then Bloomberg replies, I'll give you a billion dollars. <laughs> and then after, after that, Kale replies, what would you like the caption to be? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, so you had 142,000 likes for this and close to 2,000 comments. And the largest meme account we were actually able to find that they partnered with was at Ferry with about 15 million Instagram followers, which is owned by Jerry Media. 
a social media conglomerate that owns a variety of large meme and social media like content profiles. So Paul Blumenthal of HuffPost said, quote, Bloomberg could run only because he is one of the richest men in the world. It won him a seat on the Democratic Party presidential debate stage and the ability to campaign across more states at once than any other candidate. But in the end, when voters actually saw the product hyped across television and Instagram, they chose not to buy it. It comes as no surprise that Bloomberg's social media influence campaign was run by the same company that helped hype the 2017 Fire Festival. Wow. Ouch. So, th- so this is why when we started doing the research for this, we thought this was going to be a massive marketing fail. Yeah. At, at this point, it's still everything's pointing towards this is not going to end well. <laughs> yes. Right. That's an amazing statement. But here's a counterpoint. George Resch, which is the director of influence marketing at Brandfire, told the Times that Bloomberg's meme ad about Bernie Sanders was the most successful ad ever posted to his at Sinatra Instagram account. So this is where Bloomberg continues to do a massive test and learn. And he's trying to figure out how to combat Trump's digital prowess, basically, because the DNC has been very, very slow to respond. Yeah. A very cool quote here from Andrew Boshworth, which is the Facebook executive in January 2020. It was actually a leaked memo from Facebook. And I quote here, he got elected because he ran the single best digital ad campaign I've ever seen from any advertiser, period. And that's towards Trump. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of seems to me that Bloomberg, you know, he must have realized this and seemingly kind of understood that Russian interference was primarily via meme based guerrilla style social media marketing. We've all heard a ton about it, regardless of what your opinion is in, right. in the media. And he wanted to, I think, create this massive test and learn that he could deploy and that he could use for whomever was the eventual nominee so that he could really try to devise the most effective modern digital strategy going forward for the DNC. So in the words of the Bloomberg campaign, quote, Mike Bloomberg 2020 has teamed up with social creators to collaborate with the campaign, including the meme world. While a meme strategy may be new to presidential politics, we're betting it will be an effective component to reach people where they are and compete with President Trump's powerful digital operation. Well, you could ask yourself, was he successful? And I think at this point in the story, we realized that we want to do a, another episode in November yeah. because he has said he's not going to use all these tactics all the way through to November to aid Biden to unseat Trump, which might actually be part of his larger strategy. Yeah, that very well could be. And, you know, we could really look at his success or lack thereof from a variety of different kind of viewpoints. So we could look at it, for example, as a CPA per delegate, right? which would be 61 delegates that he won for a cost of around $11 million per delegate. Ouch. Or you can also think of it as the CPA that is about $130 per vote. Hmm. And uh, in terms of whether it has or may benefit his business endeavors, that's pretty unclear because of the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on financial markets and just the business landscape at large. There's really kind of no way to really understand, you know, what the impact would have been, uh, you know, because of that. Yeah. So if you think of this as the CPA for winning the nomination, then the ROI Mm. is zero, right? But if you think of this as the CPA to win or unseat Donald Trump, that is yet to be defined. Yeah, we don't know yet. Yeah. 
Yep. So now getting on to Super Tuesday. So we all know what happened. Bloomberg obviously, you know, didn't win. He did receive a significant number of votes, but he did win the inconsequential American Samoa. It is kind of an accomplishment, however, that even though he was just completely destroyed by Elizabeth Warren on the debate stage, he did beat her in total Super Tuesday votes. But of course, he dropped out of the race on March 4th, the day after Super Tuesday. Yeah, absolutely. So from February, no candidates had more than 27% support, but he went from 1% to 15% in just a couple of months with his meme army. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of difficult to understand why he he couldn't uh, move past this, but really it was the product in this case that was the problem, you know, it's just the product of right. Michael Bloomberg was very flawed. So, so it's becoming a little bit more clear and clear that you can't really buy a way to the top as a brand. Not with a bad product. And you have to understand why, though. And it was because he had a very troubled product long before Elizabeth Warren just took him behind the woodshed at the two debates he participated in. So Bloomberg was a lifelong Democrat until 2001 when he switched to the Republican Party to run for mayor. He then switched to an independent in 2007 and registered again, finally, as a Democrat only in October of 2018. In 2004, he endorsed the re-election of George W. Bush and spoke at the 2004 Republican National Convention, which to this day doesn't sit well with both rank and file and the establishment Democrats for obvious reasons. He also had a record in office that generally kind of runs against many of the ideals of his target audience or just weren't super popular. So for example, the Democratic base you know, didn't like issues like stop and frisk. He had some controversial policies like his attempt to ban sodas and, of course, his sexual harassment non-disclosure agreement scandals. He was just incredibly unprepared and lethargic at both debates. So it just ended up being this thing where there's this really big dissonance and divide between this slick, innovative, hard-hitting campaign where he has these emotional videos and very slick social media ads And then the desirability of the actual product itself when you kind of lay it bare. Something really, really interesting there is authenticity. And the next episode actually talks a lot about that, how Mm. people feel about a specific brand and what, you know, authenticity means. Yeah. The fact that he flip-flopped his political affiliation multiple times, and I think people saw through that. So that just shows that the product wasn't authentic and and people didn't really buy it for that matter. Terry McGowan, the CEO of the uh, Democratic Digital Strategy Group of Acronym, is a quote of her. We saw a huge disconnect between Bloomberg, the candidate, and his campaign online when he was on the debate stage. Trump has been running a very effective, authentic to his brand digital campaign since he was elected. And we're going to have to do the same if you want to beat him in November. So Trump's campaign from day one has been super digital, super authentic. Yep. You don't have to like it, but you know what it is, right? Yeah, for sure. So getting back to the whole authenticity thing. Digital advertising has been the centerpiece of Trump's 2020 campaign, and he's actually poured millions of dollars into securing ad space already. So for instance, he's bought the ad space on top of YouTube for election day, and that is the most expensive and highest profile online ad space in existence. Jeez. So yeah, I think the other thing that's really interesting to me from a marketing perspective is 
as marketers, I think we always deal with tight deadlines, right? We're trying to launch a new brand, a product, campaign, whatever it is. And so speed is this thing that's very important, but it, it can also be a double-edged sword. So move fast and break things is the mantra of Silicon Valley for obvious good reasons, but it does come at a cost. And Bloomberg's campaign was just was cobbled together so quickly that he couldn't answer policy questions in the debates because his team hadn't put them together yet. And the leap into digital marketing was so swift and chaotic that it was just chock full of executions that lacked thoughtfulness. You talked about Elizabeth Warren. This is what she does every single day. She puts policies in place, right? So he's up against a brand. He's fighting in the space of a brand that he doesn't really have any right to be in. Right. And that was very prepared from a competitive perspective. And so just the price of just quickly deploying such an incredibly high volume of decentralized content means that along with the wave of successful viral wins that he had, a number of posts were essentially deleted after they became problematic. So Katie Nibbs from Wired said in a February article titled, quote, the influencer election is here, that The 2020 election will unfortunately most certainly feature even more social media ads from fitness bloggers, Instagram famous dogs, YouTubers, and even more of their varied viral ilk. The 2016 presidential election was a demonstration of how candidates and their supporters could harness social media to spread information and misinformation. This year, they're enlisting influencers and meme makers more directly in the effort. Yeah, and what's crazy about this is we're still in the very early parts of this growth curve of social media and influencer marketing, right? This is still very early days. And this will only continue to grow and it'll change and it'll morph. So this is a work in progress for him. So think of this, everything up until this point is phase one. And phase two, he's paid for his entire campaign through to November. And he's going to take his learnings to support Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee might be. Yeah, and he had more reasons to conduct this massive test and learn than just winning his chance to sit behind the Resolute desk, right? So in 2018, he spent more than $41 million on around two dozen congressional midterm races. Crazy. Yeah, so Jordan Weissman with Slate wrote the following the day after Super Tuesday, quote, If you think about it in that context, Bloomberg's campaign doesn't look like such a disaster either. Instead of a giant product flop, as HuffPost put it, the effort looks like a beta test for a highly professional paid media and field operation that can now be turned to the task of defeating Trump and electing Democrats to Capitol Hill. Its early results haven't even been all that bad, really. I mean, Bloomberg was an ex-Republican with glaring liabilities on gender and race in a party dominated by women and black voters who also happens to have all the natural charisma of a skink. There is no rational world in which he made sense as the Democratic nominee. Wow. What we've really learned is that a billionaire can spend just a tiny fraction of their resources and gain serious political influence, and that the concept of brand marketing is nothing like it was 10 years ago. Thank you for listening, and talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.